Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Tapping Into Crypto. Got myself, got Paz, and we got a very, very special guest today, Stephen Richardson, who is the VP, Head of Product Strategy and Business Solutions at Fireblocks, who are actually SwiftX's custodian and pretty much the top custodian platform in the world. Stephen, very, very welcome to the podcast, Matt. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Matt, I guess we've met in person a few times and uh, I think you're a really good dude. You're a guy that knows a shitload about <laughs> the business that he's in and, and what what you're trying to do. And could you kind of tell us a little bit, firstly, I guess, about yourself and, and your role in Fireblocks and then a little bit about Fireblocks itself? Yeah, no problem. So yeah, I've been with Fireblocks for, it's coming up on four years. Started with Michael and the team, you know, when I think it was like a team of like 12 or 13 before that I was an advisor for the company. So really believed in kind of like the broader mission of bringing, let's say, custodial technology, right? We're not a custodian, but we're generally like the technology layer that folks need to utilize to have best-in-class security around holding their digital assets. So I've known the team for a long time. I'm currently head of our APAC business, and I'm, I'm managing director of our financial markets business. So really everything that we're doing related to supporting crypto native players, retail and fintech platforms, and then banks and FMIs and digital assets, right? We see a huge movement in the financial services space when it comes to blockchain technology. And we think that, you know, first and foremost importance is how you manage the private key, right? If you can't securely manage the private key of your assets, then it's kind of useless that you're operating in this space, right? Because it's a huge cybersecurity risk. So we've really focused on, on that. Fireblocks is a company now. We're 600 plus employees globally, over 1,700 clients globally, really making sure and, and building like the leading infrastructure for digital asset companies, right? And when I say digital asset companies, I don't necessarily mean those are that are just natively digital, but those that are emerging in digital asset use cases and blockchain use cases. And so we have businesses around uh, custodial technology. So folks like yourselves are using that platform and, and really using that to grow your business. We have products around payments and enabling payments companies to really operate in digital assets and utilize digital assets as a form of things like merchant payouts. We have a Web3 business, which focuses really on Everything related to new and upcoming emergent uses of things like NFTs and the broader Web3 space. So think about folks like Flipkart in India using NFTs as a basis of improving consumer engagement. And then we have what we do around financial markets. So really like things like settlements infrastructure, trading integrations, custodial infrastructure, tokenization, all of that is within that broader piece. So we have a pretty diversified business, but it's one that we think is necessary for folks to really be able to engage in the space in a real way. Sure, man, absolutely. And I guess I often get asked about Fireblocks because, you know, we talk quite a bit about it across our platform. And once we engaged in the services of Fireblocks, it really changed the game for us in terms of asset management and that governance layer that, that has been kind of included. And a lot of people, they still find it hard to get their head around exactly what it does. But I guess... One that I know is very popular, people talk about the Quadriga CX documentary on Netflix, right? Where right. essentially one guy had the power, had the key, and was controlling all the assets for like an exchange. So I guess what Fireblocks has done specifically for SwiftX is kind of add that governance layer in and, and that permission mm -hmm. layer. You know, no one person can do an action or move money or move digital assets around without kind of 
you know, somebody else checking it and saying that it's that it's okay to do sauce. And that's the way that I usually break it down and, and try to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, right? I think if you if you look at this space, right, there's been this like fundamental picture that everyone can build all this technology themselves, right? I think it's which, which is like relatively fascinating, right? Like, you know, you have core banking providers like FIS and Temnos and all of these folks that for large banks with big market cap to come in and provide like core infrastructure to help them more efficiently run their business. You have SAP and Oracle, right, that do that for huge, massive companies across the space. You don't have many people saying, I'm going to build my own data center, right? They rely on AWS and Microsoft and IBM, but weirdly in digital assets, everyone is like, I'm going to build my own custodial platform. Right. It's quite a fascinating thing. Right. And I think it's fascinating because there are lots of different options. Right. Lots of folks are technologists. They want to build it themselves. You can use a ledger device. You can use any other kind of set of devices. But when things go badly, they go really, really badly in that basis. Right. And folks, I think, underestimate how much work it is to actually build a best in class infrastructure for digital assets. Right. And, and so. You know, we're not a financial services company. Like we don't have a custodian. We don't have a trading and brokerage arm. We don't have a lending arm. We just focus on tech. That's it. Right. And I think in a world where you should focus on the things that make you say enable your competitive advantage, potentially not building your own custody platform is that competitive advantage and making sure that you leverage the right technology provider that gives you all the tools that you're talking about, right? Gives you like the governance layer through our transaction authorization policy, utilizes MPC to segregate and split up the key shares, utilizes hardware technology to secure all the vulnerable points within your system, right? Those are things that our team is thinking about every day and our clients just leverage and get the benefit of a platform that builds that and utilizes that. And then they take it and they customize it and they make it right fit for their business, right? And in so making it right fit for your business, you're able to scale your own business without necessarily having to go back and build all of these components and keep up with the latest and greatest and changes from algorithms through hardware technology, right? And I think that enables our customers, I think, to grow and scale in a different way while also saying, hey, do I now put into place best practices that allow me to go out to my customers and say that I'm a very highly scalable, highly secure enterprise platform, right, for you to be able to use, right? And so we think that's a huge difference. And it's why we've had, I think, a pretty strong partnership with our clients compared to maybe some of the other folks in the space that are in some ways potentially competing with their clients. Now, that makes sense, Stephen. Definitely just the landscape of crypto itself has changed so much, I guess, in the last couple of years. Infrastructure like this, it's so key, like in in any of this getting mainstream adoption on Mm -hmm. being brought into regulatory environments. Like I know that's a hot topic right now. Like it's key, right? But I guess I think it's just even rewinds from yourself and your personal perspective on this all. Like how did you sort of get number one into crypto and what sort of led you to Flyblocks? You mentioned your consulting work. Like what was a sticking point for you as part of your induction in crypto? Yeah, so I was a consultant at Accenture, you know, finished business school, went to Accenture, main manager. And then I thought to myself, man, I'm a bit of a mercenary at the moment, right? Like, you know, like, let's just be honest, right? Projects and, and consulting don't move as quickly as you think they might. And to be honest, you don't have an ability to make as much impact, right? Like across the board. So main manager is like, okay, you know, you got to get your first promotion, make sure that people don't think you're an absolute idiot and you're going to hack it. Right. And, you know, I was like, okay, what am I going to do next? 
So a buddy of mine actually invested in a company that was focused on FX, right? Creating like a prime brokerage and settlement infrastructure for FX. And he was like, listen, we acquired a bank license. We're building this company. Like you're obviously a consultant, pretty good one. Help us figure out what to do. And I was like, all right, well, that sounds like a cool opportunity. Uh, why not? Right. Like take risk in your career a little bit early and join that company. Now, interestingly enough, that company was servicing some of the largest FX players in the space who then were getting into crypto. So basically they came to us and asked us to kind of like pivot and support basically settlement for crypto. And that's how I got exposed. Right. Which was, you know, all these huge market makers that were doing traditional FX all of a sudden were saying, man, we think this crypto stuff from a trading and asset class perspective is really interesting. And I'm like, well, what is this like crypto stuff? Like, I have no idea. What year was that in? This was 2017. Yeah. So like early 20. All right. So like I joined the company in 2016 and we kind of were on this FX kick for about six months. And then like beginning of 2017, we started hearing about like the crypto stuff. Right. And I'm like, cool, like, we'll just do it. Like, no, no problem. And then I, I like realized there was like this entire marketplace and basically ecosystem that existed in places like China and in Korea and Japan and all these places. And I hadn't really heard of it in the U.S. Like none of my friends were talking about it. No one I knew was really talking about it and just then started to go down a rabbit hole. Right. And so obviously you're in this like beautiful position where you're getting to talk to people that are like now interested in building entire businesses. And we're talking about some of the largest trading firms in the world, right? Some of these high frequency traders. And they're coming to you and saying like, look, this is stuff that we're interested in and we're building infrastructure around it and we're building trading algorithms and we're doing all this stuff. And I was just like, well, it's kind of dope. I don't know. Like there's nothing else that like is on the forefront of this like completely new for me, right? The only thing you had heard about before were like, robotics and AI, right? That was a big consulting kick in 2016. And then all of a sudden you're hearing about like new forms of money, right? Which is like, just like a crazy concept. So our company started to support that. I started to grow more interested in around like, what were the ecosystems being built? For me, like, I know people always say like, is Ethereum like, is it security? Is it a commodity? Is it a currency? For me, it's pretty interesting, right? For me, like these ecosystems represent like entire new communities of which the value that's being built on that blockchain is represented by the token. That seems like a currency to me. That seems like a pretty interesting basis for how things evolve. And so it was just interesting to like go through and understand like why were people fans of Bitcoin as a store of value? Why, why was that the case? And what was this role decentralization piece? And then as Ethereum came into vogue, like, why were people excited about this? Like, what were people building on it? Why was it interesting? And then there were all these different tokens that were coming out after that and what made them unique and interesting after that. And there's just this whole, like, just absolute deep rabbit hole you could go down. Go ahead. It involves in the trading side of it as well, Stephen, yourself. Like, I mean, it's pretty easy, I guess, to, to get sucked in, especially around 2017 when things were going parabolic and we kind of seen the first real mainstream type cycle in, in crypto when it comes to the markets, at least. Is that yeah. something that you got it involved with yourself kind of early on? Or what was your position there? Yeah, I was buying. I mean, like, to be honest, like, I don't come, you know, to be very honest. I just believe in certain themes, right? So really, at the end of the day, I, I say to myself, do I believe that communities are being developed on certain blockchains, right? Do I believe in the thesis of that blockchain? Do I believe that it's going to add value? Do I believe that people are going to build projects and interesting things that have a lot of utility on this blockchain? If I believe that, then I, I buy 
right? That's simply it. I, I'm not, I will argue, I'm not a, a leverage trader. I'm not like going long and trading across like multiple different tokens. I am looking at what I think are interesting projects or things that I believe have a lot of utility. And then I am putting my money there and for the most part, holding it, right? You know, that the basis of what I do. I think like I'm always on the lookout for things that are going to solve the payments problem, right? For example, I don't know if there's a layer one today that truly can solve the payments problem and be used from a, like a true retail level. So if I come across that blockchain, I'm for sure like something I believe in that's going to do that. I'm for sure buying and going along there. But generally speaking, I bought Bitcoin and Ethereum. I had some Solana for a period of time. Generally, I'm pretty, pretty core to like putting away a certain amount of my paycheck and into buying tokens that I think make sense. Right. And I generally do hold long. Right. Yeah. That's very rare in the piece. Haven't I talked to the subscribers quite a bit about the type preferences in crypto and they're just, they're just so much shorter than every other investment. And it gives you a bit of a picture as to how potentially early we are in the space and how much room there is for innovation. And, and I guess, you know, Fireblocks kind of stepped right into that, that path as well. I guess, Stephen, another question I have, like, I mean, custody itself is kind of a contentious topic to some people, mm -hmm. particularly after, you know, some of the events that we see in layouts in 2022 with bad mm -hmm. practice, bad flares in the space. From your perspective, what's the biggest problem here? What's the main issue? Is it, is it that we don't have the right kind of services available today? Or is it that just we have bad actors? Where do you sit with that? Look, I think it's like a weird, I say this like carefully, okay? I think it's a weird thing that there's this argument that crypto, everyone in crypto is bad, it's all scammers, blah, 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 right? Like at the end of the day, right, you have Bernie Madoff, what, $65 billion or something like that, right, in traditional finance. You have Bill Wang that had prime brokerage, I think lost $20 billion. That $20 billion is not coming from, you know, all the banks that did prime brokerage. That $20 billion is going to come from retail. It's coming from people's investments in these banks, right, that basically saw their values plummet, higher fees for retail, all sorts of things, right? The people who are going to pay back this loss in this fundamentally secure system that seems to be traditional finance are the retail consumers, right? They're going to be good and bad players and actors in every situation, right? What you're trying to do through things like regulation is minimize the opportunity that they have. But if someone wants to be a bad actor and a scammer, they can be a bad actor and a scammer, right? It's just like, it's a weird notion to me that if someone wants to break the law, you live in a world with bunch of rules and laws and police and all that stuff. If someone wants to do something bad, they can, right? So this idea that like basically this only belongs to crypto, I think is like a, is a weird thing. Now, do I think there needs to be the right governance in place? Absolutely. But I, I also think there's like so much more information that's available in crypto than in anything else, right? Which is like, at the end of the day, if you argue simply, if you're an exchange, you should segregate assets and keep them separately and clients should be able to opt in to different products. Great. A regulator can ask for the wallet addresses that are holding omnibus balances and check it against your internal ledger in a real way, in real time, if they wanted to do that, yep. right? It is not as though the technology doesn't exist to provide regulators and folks a crazy level of transparency into balances. The fact is, at the end of the day, even though Credit Suisse or all these guys lost billions of dollars with Bill Wang and Archegos, no one questioned whether or not they were going to fail, right? They had a backstop that is the central bank. In crypto, everyone has to be pretty much absolutely perfect on things like risk management, 
duration risk, like all of these other things, right? And so they're getting better and better. And I think as more credit comes into the space, as more value comes into space, some of these issues that we've seen will change. I think regulators are trying to get smarter around like, what does it mean to regulate digital asset companies? How do we look at the rules and the governance and understand like, is that really being applied, right? Are there, are there things there? How do we use third-party technology providers that potentially provide a little bit of a separation? So if you think about what we're hearing about the FTX case in that, you know, there were backdoors and all of this stuff that were being built, potentially using a technology provider, whether that's us or someone else, mitigate some of that, right? Again, having regulators understand that you can look at the transaction authorization policies and understand, is it doing what it's supposed to do? Can I pull the audit logs? Can I check their balances against all the different addresses that they tell me that they're holding customer funds in? It's just like a range of different things that can mitigate some of these issues. Just people need to be a little bit smarter about them. So I think to ask someone like, man, are there bad players in any different space? Absolutely. Bad players in traditional finance, they're bad players in medicine, they're bad players in sports, they're bad players in crypto, right? Like that's just like the long and short of it. Now the whole space needs to do better and understanding like how do we engage with the regulators? How do we let them know that the good players aren't afraid to be regulated and aren't afraid to work with like the right technology vendors and have the right governance processes in place? And over time, it becomes a better and better space. So I push back pretty hard on this idea that like, you know, this is a crypto only problem. And we've seen significant losses in funds from traditional finance and prime brokerage and technology and all sorts of things, given all the regulation that exists around these entities, right? Sure. I think it's, you know, the velocity in which we've seen the likes of Terra Luna fail, we've seen Celsius go down. You know, you touched on FTX and I did the FTX one as an extra sore point for a lot of people, a lot of our users, a lot of people that are using, I guess, any exchange platform or holding any value on any exchange platform are still quite nervous, right? Like, so the trust, in my opinion, has been set back a couple of years in terms of players in the space. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think you shouldn't expect to be trusted. You should prove how you're going to be trusted, right? And I mean, that's a big part of, of why we use services like Fireblocks today, at, at mm. especially. I guess even to bring it back to the kind of FTX case, it's obviously still going on and there's a lot of people who have eyes on it. Fireblocks recently announced that you guys are doing like an off-exchange settlement pipe. Yeah. Can you talk to us about that? And I guess, what would a product like that stop when you think about FTX and how that played out? Yeah, look, so there's two solutions in the space today, right? So where this came out from is I'm a customer. I'm a large institution. I want to allocate capital to an exchange. I don't want to put money on the exchange. Like think about like in traditional finance, you have banks that are providing like capital credit intermediation and all these components for you. So you're not really putting your own funds on the exchange or you're part of like a clearinghouse and like, you know, everyone shares loss, right? But generally you trade through your basically through your banking partner. So you're not used to this idea of if I want to trade $100 million in value, I'm going to put $100 million of value on that exchange with this third party that I may or may not know. (laughs) Like, to be honest, I hope you know them. You know, I don't know all the inner workings of, like, I don't know how they operate. Maybe they're somewhat secretive. Maybe they're not. Okay. So the view was really after in the wake of FTX, just credit limits and, and risk tolerances in general dropped massively, right? A lot of folks are like, we just will not put our funds on different exchanges anymore, right? Or we'll put significantly less than we used to trade. 
which affects like everything, right? It affects the exchanges. It affects, you know, basically capital allocations, all of these different pieces. There's two different models that exist in this space. Both are pretty good, right? I'm not going to knock them. The first is you use a third-party custodian as a trusted kind of intermediary. You fund that third-party custodian, the exchange funds that third-party custodian. That third-party custodian is holding both assets for settlement. And basically, as trades come in, think about it like trade drops come in, they basically net settle or real-time settle the PL between both. Our view on it simply was, it's one thing if that's BNY Mellon coming in and doing that, right? It's another thing once the person on the other side potentially has a lesser balance sheet than you, right? And so... You both now as the exchange and the client are taking counterparty risk to this third-party custodian, right? Who's now holding assets on both of your behalf. Now, ideally, they've gone through the right licensing. They're regulated. If they've done all of those things, if they're insured, right? Then again, there's no problem. But you should think about like the credit risk. Like, are they backed? Are they well-funded? You know, do they have other lines of business that can impede or impact this line of business? That's one option. The second option is just take it from a technology perspective and what multi-party computation and policy rules can do, which in our case says we're going to create an integration between the exchange and yourself, right? We're going to allow you to create what are called collateral vaults, right? And these collateral vaults basically have an is that that sits on top of them. You can allocate into this collateral vault, right? And when you allocate into this collateral vault, the funds are locked by the exchange. So the exchange has visibility not to the rest of your funds in the wallet, but only to the funds that have been allocated specifically for activity on that exchange. They can see that, they can lock it and unlock it, and then they can provide you credit on the exchange. The interesting thing is that your funds, if you think about it from a bankruptcy perspective, your funds are actually still always in your custody, right? So while we don't solve counterparty risk entirely, right? The the argument being, Let's say you have positive P&L on the exchange on a derivatives basis and the exchange goes under, right? And your $2 million that you made over there might be held up. The initial $10 million of capital is still at least in your vault. It is still at least in your ownership structure and right, it mitigates some of the losses that are kind of incurred there. And so there are different elements, there are different like constructs of this. We're working with different custodians to basically leverage this tool and this technology. We're working with folks to be able to do it out of a self-custodial way. But we think that this technological approach is a pretty efficient one, right? And it allows you to mitigate some of the risk of this pre-allocation and pre-funding while not changing the dynamics of the relationship between you and the exchange, right? Not adding uh, another party that you're taking some level of counterparty risk to, right? Because everyone takes technology risk, right? That's universal, where are you taking some other level of counterparty or product risk that you don't understand? And we think that by kind of keeping this relationship between the customer and the exchange in a bilateral fashion, we're not introducing any new credit risk or any new counterparty risk. So, you know, that's what we're focusing on. And, and our job is to kind of build tools that enable our customers to go out and, and then execute. Yeah, Stephen, I think about it as crypto's version of escrow accounts is what you guys are building. You're building a blockchain or a digital asset version of an escrow account that essentially takes the trust out of it, at least for that principal balance. Like you talked about, hey, you've you've got 10 million allocated to the exchange and you've traded that to 20 million. Well, yes, you might not, if the exchange goes under, you, you might not have that additional profit of 10 million, but that initial principal balance of 10 is safe, essentially. And that's, I guess, thinking back to what happened with FTX and 
a lot of the brokers or customers of FTX, they had all their, their funds on the exchange sitting there, essentially physically, if you want to call it physically, with the likes of a Fireblocks product that I think a lot of businesses are going to lean into with this off-exchange settlement. It just means that that should never happen again. And, you know, I think about when you're even selecting an exchange to trade on. For me, these are going to become prerequisites to, to deciding what exchange you even put your, your money on to trade. Yeah, I mean, I think we think so, right? I mean, I think it's just like, for example, we like to look at what is it, the Celsius case, right? Where everyone that was lending into Celsius thought, you know, if I lend there and my money's there, I get it back, right? And then when this whole case went to the bankruptcy courts, they basically said that because of in the terms of service, right, that Celsius delineated they could do with the funds, like kind of as they wished, right? Everyone's funds became a part of the bankruptcy estate. That's fascinating, right? Like the risk that is involved with that. So as you think about any of these third party, you know, settlement pieces, like you, you should ask yourself, like, what's the legal structure of what's being done here? What are the default waterfalls? Like what happens in the case of dispute? All these different things. And then our view is like, it's much easier to manage that bilaterally. And can we utilize technology to create an easy way for folks to interact with each other? Yes, we can. So let's do that, right? And I think it'll become a much easier basis for how folks would operate in the space over the long term, or at least that's our hope. Yeah, that nice. makes a lot of sense. You know, I guess from your perspective, what do you think of the, I guess, main factors to the average person sort of considering whether or not to do self-custody or custody with an exchange in this current environment? Like, I know me and Tommy are sure to share our thoughts on that, but it'd be yeah. good to get your take on that one. Look, self-custody, there's always two approaches. Like, you can build it yourself. The question is like, do you have the skill set, the engineers, the ability to manage all the components? The money. That, all, and the money. The money, right? The <laughs> absolute <laughs> money, right? Yeah to build out yourself, right? And if you don't, right, don't do it. Okay, like that's just like the simple the simple answer there. Like we think we're a great provider. There are other providers out there. One of the things we won't really, uh, at least for me, I won't really ever shit on another provider unless like, I don't know, I just don't do it, right? There are others, explore them if you think that they make sense for you. The second is utilize the platform. And, and when you utilize the platform, you need to be thinking about a couple of things. What's their founding team? Like, do they have the experience to really like build and scale and grow? Right. That's question number one. Like, have they successfully done that before? Right. To be honest, it's the same way I looked at it when I decided to work at Fireblocks. Right. Does your founding team, have they built a business before? Have they built a business that's at least industry adjacent, like cybersecurity? Right. Like, have they done that? Two, where are their focus areas? Are they completely and entirely focused on security as a means of growing their own business? Because I think it's important. The attack vectors, the risks, all of this stuff change in the space so rapidly. Like it requires just like a crazy and insane level of focus to like stay ahead of the curve, right? And are they bringing in the right people to help them do this? Three, like is the platform, does it have the right like certification? We've gone through the uh, CCSS certif- three certification. I think we're the only company right now that has that certification. We have our ISO certifications. We're SOC 2 type 2. We get pen tested by NCC group. Like there are all these different things or we've had our cryptographic libraries audited by NCC group. We get pen tested. Are they doing the right things as a technology vendor, right? And then have they been able to get insurance and other things that as a technology vendor, you should have, right? In case something goes badly. Now, we're not talking about insuring people's entire wallets, but we're saying, do they have ENO? Do they have the right like insurance capacity to say, as a technology provider, you're insured in the right way in case of broader technology failure? 
you should have those things in place. Like you should ask these holistic questions the same way you would ask FIS or AWS or anyone like, you know, what do you have in place to make sure that if I build or I utilize you, you're the right technology vendor for me? So that's the questions you should be asking in the platform for it. And then I think on the custodial element, you should ask, like, what's the background technology? Did you build it yourself? Like, is it proprietary? Are you leveraging someone else? What licensing do you have? Where are you regulated? Like, how are you regulated? Are you through an SRO? Did you go through licensing from the central bank or the other regulatory authority within that country? You know, what are your operational procedures, right? Who is allowed to and how do you mitigate single points of compromise? Like, what's the right governance in place? Are you, you know, what are the hours of operations? Like, all of these different questions you should ask, especially if you're outsourcing that activity to someone else. So, you know, I think there's a lot of questions, right? You know, and, and we kind of, look, I think we want to see the whole space do well. So for us, if you want to use a custodian, use a custodian, right? But just make sure you ask the right questions, right? If you want to use technology provider, make sure you're asking the right questions. And if you want to build it yourself, good luck to you, right? Like that's the way I kind of look at it, you know, and we hope that eventually you kind of see that's a very difficult task and leveraging a provider like Fireblocks might be helpful. I think, Stephen, in terms of strategic alignment, strategic partnerships, and even just thinking about the values of certain companies and what they actually lean into and what they stand for, there is no greater example, especially with my involvement and our involvement with X and Fireblocks, of a perfectly aligned strategic partner to handle all of those things that you mentioned. We don't have the type to build or we don't want to focus on it's just not our key area of focus. Our focus is like elsewhere. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a really good alignment. And yeah, like I mentioned, we've had many conversations about this, but super happy with what you guys are doing and to have you guys as a, as a partner. Yeah. We're, I mean, obviously, uh, it's good to hear that you guys are happy. I mean, it's one of those things. It'll be, um, always, you know, sometimes you get into a meeting and they're like, Hey, things are a little sideways. Like, oh, no, 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 no. But like, for us, it's one of those things where it's, it, it's always good to have a partner that, you know, I think is is doing the right things, is thinking about things the right way. And then it's more along the lines of how do you collaborate, right, to to understand what you guys are wanting to build, how you guys are going into a market, what's required and necessary for you guys to grow and scale your business. And that for us is like the important part of being a technology provider, right, is to, to help folks grow their business and, you know, to make sure that you're supportive in, in helping them scale. Because as you do better, we do better. That's the simple truth. So it's imperative for us that everything's aligned that way. See, I want you to give one final piece of advice to specifically like retail users, like listening to this, like a lot of our users retail. Yeah. When they think about custody, like what are the one, two, three things that they really need to think about at a retail level versus enterprise business? Look, I think the first thing, and it's going to sound weird, is go and read terms of service for love. Like, please, like, I will kind of reiterate this, like, go and read the terms of service. Like, you know, I know people don't read them when they are good chat GBT to do it for you. Or do something <laughs> like seriously, because like, I know people don't read it when they sign up for phone bills and all this stuff. But it's your money, right? And it's not, you know, I think people don't think about like the fact that like whenever you put money at a bank, right? Outside of the insured amount, the bank really takes that money and they do other things with it, right? But you just have this like faith that like the central bank and everyone else will step in if things go really haywire, right? Like that's just the truth. Banks re-hypothecate your money. They take it, they lend it. They do all these things. That's why they have to have these capital ratios. In crypto, there's no such thing yet, right? There's no capital reserve ratios. There's no backstop for if things really get crazy. And so at the end of the day, right, if you're just trading, like you're just like buying and selling, then understanding how the exchange 
is managing and using your money and the rights you have to those funds are like maybe first and foremost, the most important thing. Okay. And, and if you don't understand that, then you should trade and move your money into a ledger and then trade and move your money into a ledger and call it a day. Right. Like, I think that's the view, right? If you are working with a really strong custodial provider and, and also a strong exchange, you'll see that generally they've built mechanisms to really try to ensure customers' funds are safe, either operationally, via term service, or, or something else. And so read those and understand them. Uh, I think it's like the most important thing. Like do your homework, right? I mean, no one can stop you from doing your homework and understanding like who are the right companies that are thinking about this the right way. No, that's awesome, man. It's, that's some great advice. You know, Pav and I do harp on quite a bit about, you know, on exchange, especially at SwiftX, we have campaigns going to educate users in, in taking such custody. Like for us, our model is not based on holding, holding funds on the exchange, right? Trading platform. So it's good to hear that kind of coming from your side, sitting on an, an unbiased seat and are more so on the, you know, custody and security side. So Steve, man, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you in today. I appreciate you giving up your time and, and uh, I'm actually in the next 20 minutes going to be jumping onto a call with one of your team. So the Firebox conversations continue for me for today. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks again, Ned, for joining. And um, yeah, it was really great to get your, your insights and, and knowledge across this topic that, yeah, everybody, I guess, is, is focusing on right now. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. If you liked it, don't forget to head over to the gram and join us at Tapping Into Crypto. And before we finish up, just a general disclaimer that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. And the opinions on this podcast belong to individuals and are not affiliated with any companies mentioned. Any advice is general in nature and does not take into account your own personal situation. If you're looking to get advice, please seek out the help of a licensed financial advisor. We'll talk to you soon. 